Welcome to the show, everybody. This is your boy, Lo Jackson. We're in our second season here at the Only You Podcast. Thank you guys for all your questions and all your invites, and thank you for wanting me to join all your groups on Facebook or <clears throat> other wonderful readings of other books that people do. Um, I am grateful to be here. I'm grateful to have found a platform where I can share my opinions and thoughts. I try to share books that I find educational or, you know, a book that may lead somebody to live a different life than what they lived yesterday, maybe help them develop a certain type of um, emotional understanding about themselves that will propel them into future enlightenment. Um, today, I'm going to be going over a book that I found called Democracy and Education by John Dewey. Uh, the transcriber notes here, I have tried to make this the most accurate text possible, but I am sure that there are still mistakes. Thank you guys for listening to the Only You Podcast, and I gotta say, I do relate to uh, that right there. <laughs> uh, John Dewey was born on October 20th, 1859, and he met his unfortunate demise on June 1st, 1952. He was an American philosopher, psychologist, and educational reformer. Um, whose ideas have been influenced, or excuse me, influential in education and social reform. He was one of the most prominent American scholars in the first half of the 20th century, and he was actually born in uh, Burlington, Vermont. Um, his early life, he was one of four boys born to Archibald Dewey and Lucina Rich Dewey. Their second son was also named John, but he died in an accident on January 17th, 1859. The second John Dewey, which that's the one we're talking about today that wrote this book, was born October 20th, 1859, 40 weeks after the death of his older brother. Like his older surviving brother, Davis Rich Dewey, he attended the University of Vermont, where he was initiated into Delta Psi and graduated Phi Beta Kappa in 1879. A significant professor of Dewey's at the University of Vermont was Henry Augustus Pearson Torrey, H.A.P. Torrey, the son-in-law and nephew of former University of Vermont president Joseph Torrey. Dewey studied privately with Torrey between his graduation from Vermont and his enrollment at John Hopkins. Uh, after two years as a high school teacher in Oil City, Pennsylvania, and one year as an elementary school teacher in a small town in Charlotte, Vermont, Dewey decided that he was unsuited for teaching primary or secondary education after studying with George Sylvester Morris, Charles Sanders, and Pierce, excuse me guys, sorry about that, dropped my book. Uh, Dewey received his Ph.D. from the School of Arts and Science at John Hopkins University in 1884. He accepted a faculty position at the University of Michigan with the help of George Sylvester Morris. His unpublished and now lost uh, dissertation was titled The Psychology of Kant. In 1894, Dewey joined the newly found University of Chicago where he developed his belief in rational 
empiricism. A, uh, empiricism is an, uh, uh, a theory that holds that knowledge or justification comes only or primarily from sensory experience. It is one of several views within epistemology, along with rationalism and skepticism. That's pretty wild, right? During the time, Dewey also initiated the University of Chicago Laboratory Schools, where he was able to uh, actualize the pedagogical beliefs that provided material for his first major work on education, the school, and society. Disagreements and, oh, excuse me, disagreements with the administration ultimately caused his uh, resignation from the university, and soon thereafter, he relocated near the East Coast. Thank you guys for listening to the Only You podcast, and we're uh, talking about John Dewey today, and I want to share, um, I don't know if you guys have ever heard about what's going on in schools with uh, SEL now, which is social-emotional learning, and in reality, we need to be learning social-emotional learning in several aspects of our life because a lot of people have been raised i mean there's generations that didn't know all the things that we know now that we have you know technology at our fingertips you know and there are still um dilapidating belief systems that families hold inside of you know their personal circles that are actually harming many generations to come and if we don't have social emotional learning we don't know how actually other people work and we don't try to understand we're going to be closed off and we're not going to be able to you know form wonderful relationships with people that are um there to share their love with us and we'll be closed off and it's just not a good thing um so this is i want to share with you um kind of like um the history of social emotional learning to an extent and In 1791, the Bill of Rights was passed, leaving the state's power to create education systems. However, the federal government was left with the authority to mandate legislation to protect students' civil liberties. And we've seen that throughout time. You know, uh, Governor George Wallace standing in front of uh, the, the school in Georgia, not letting, you know, blacks into a white school and all that garbage. Which, that was one of the dumbest things this country's ever gone through. Just for the fact that we were coerced into some system that people on the outside created. But now, here in America, we're left to feel, you know, pretty much the half-life of our past ancestors, you know, terrible decision-making. Throughout U.S. history, Supreme Court rulings and federal laws eventually led to the call of social-emotional learning in classrooms as an attempt to bridge the gap in learning for a growing population of diverse and at-risk students. 1796 to 1859, Horace Mann, which I talk about Horace Mann in several of my other podcasts. You know, I just did a podcast, um, uh, Freedom's Battle by Mahatma Gandhi. I had talked about, you know, the education in that 
Um, I think I think I talked about Horse Man maybe in that podcast, but I know I talked about the educational system and uh, the Communist Manifesto podcast that I did as well. Um, he promoted the idea education was the key to political stability and social harmony, and public schooling was central to good citizenship, democratic uh, participation, and social well-being. His principles still hold true for education today, and he is considered the founding father of American education. And I've read several um, uh, uh, writings about how a lot of people believe that, you know, there are, there's actually writings out there that Germany has documented that they were trying to figure out a way to control the masses. And that, you know... And it isn't just because, you know, Hitler was there at one point and he wanted to control the masses. No, you know, Italy also tried to do mind control with their people. France has tried to do it. England's tried to do it. America's tried to do it. You know, you hear all these stories, you know, they dump fluoride into our water. And in reality, the, you know, the governments thought that fluoride was a way to uh, curve your penal glands. So you wouldn't want to worship God as much and then you would be more conformed to the government. And I've read all kinds of stupid stuff like that. And, like, and I'm, I'm not saying that it's not true, but I mean, it's like, it makes you think, wow, man, there's, there's glands inside of your brain, the penal gland, which that's your God gland. And it's the size of like your thumb, the end of your thumb, that's your penal gland. But it makes you want to be connected with a God. And there are chemicals out there that can actually um, affect your penal gland to the point where you have a total disconnect, and that's going on in America right now with foods. In 1859 to 1954, John Dewey was an educational philosopher who emphasized meeting the needs of the whole child, physical, social, and emotional, and intellectual. I totally agree. His philosophy has been integrated into social-emotional learning and modern education. Um, and did you know, uh, in 1902 to 1994... Research conducted by Eric Erickson introduces the theory that caregivers and peers influence children in positive and negative ways, which leads to children experiencing feelings and conclusions about self-concept and how they fit into the world in which they live. His research opened the door to the idea that children's emotional and social interactions are inseparable. Totally true. I can tell you this, like, my experience in the American educational system, um, I was the last class to ever have to deal with corporal punishment in America, and I can tell you this, the last year was 1993 in my state, and I was sent to the principal for writing an inappropriate sentence about it. The word was kitty. In reality, I wrote, <laughs> I had met, I moved to this new town, and I had met this kid, and he become my friend over the summer, and I wanted to impress him. So the spelling word was kitty. So I wrote, in third grade, I wrote, my kitty climbed up a cow's butt and died. <laughs> oh, man. The teacher ripped it out of his hand and sent us to the principal. We get down there. The secretary says that he's in a meeting in a different school. And the teacher tells me to read it to the secretary. So I, I did. And the teacher slapped me across the face onto the floor. The secretary jumped up and screamed at her and said, you can't do that in this state. And I won't stand for it. And the teacher ran out of the room and the secretary reached down and picked me up. You know, and later on, that teacher came back 20 years later and apologized to me. And she said that 
she had been going through a lot that year. And unfortunately, it just happened to be at a time when she had lost control. And I was the only person that she had ever lost control on. It was unfortunate. But I can tell you that the teachers, I mean, that, I mean, that was kind of a funny story. But the teachers after that, they always told me, you know, and they encouraged me. Man, you are talented. You know, they would always tell me that, you know, you're going to go somewhere. You just got to apply yourself. And uh, I believed in that. And it helped me. It paved my way. And that's why I think this, you know, the research conducted by Eric Erickson, you know, it introduced the theory that caregivers and peers influence children in positive and negative ways. Yeah, that teacher slapping me across the face. Well, I got paddled the year before that, too. I had a kid, the, the teacher, in second grade, the teacher said, if you roll your pencil down your desk, you're getting the paddle. This kid came by that didn't like me, banged his hip off my desk, there went my pencil. She threw me out in the hallway. Well, she wasn't going to spank me in front of the whole class. She told me to grab my ankles because she went and got this other teacher. I grabbed my ankles, man. I seen that old lady draw back, and I jumped out of the way, and I said, strike one. And uh, the whole class laughed. Even the other teacher laughed, and she was like, grab your ankles. And when I seen her draw back and swing, I jumped out of the way, and I said, strike two. Man, the teacher, the other teacher laughed. My teacher grabbed me by the shoulder, and just she let loose. <laughs> Anyways, I was uh, a, a pretty wild child in my early years. <laughs> I'm only human, guys. Come on. Uh, in 1925, um, President Albert Bandura theorized that children... Uh, imitate the positive and negative behavior of models, which include caregivers and peers. Bandura also believed children purposely chose behaviors they want to want to emulate. Uh, social and emotional programs used in today's classrooms, implicitly and explicitly, rely on modeling of teachers and peers to convey and reinforce newly acquired social and emotional skills. Which I do believe, I wish I would have had more male teachers, because... I mean, um, at one point, a school teacher was considered just about to be like a nun. She could not marry. And that's the truth. And this, uh, and I have, when I was doing this book and the research on it, I came across parts of people in the U.S. government that wanted nothing but female teachers and they wanted it ran like a convent. Like they wanted those kids because that's how you get mind control. How, you know, when you, when you socialize a dog, like you take your dog to the dog park and you put it around all kinds of dogs and people, you know, you open your door and the dog runs out, it's going to go up to anybody and everybody. Now, I've learned this over time with my dogs. If I want my dog to be a protector and to growl when the wolf bangs on the door, well, that's when you don't socialize your dog and he only knows you. So then, in turn, when... You know, the wolf growls at the door. My dog's right there behind me growling too, saying, bring it. Because my dog only knows me and only loves me. And the same goes for a child. And I mean, I mean, there's writers out there that write books about how my dog changed my life. And if you don't think that your dog can't change your life, buddy, you're dead wrong. Because, I mean, they, they call a dog a man's best friend for a reason. Because they're so closely related to a child. And... That you can do anything to a dog and he's going to come back and love you. Well, you do anything to a child, at some point that child's never going to come back to you. If you, you know, don't understand the social norms of, you know, loving and caring for someone who is so influential and their minds are like a sponge, you know. In 1954, Brown versus the Board of Education, 
the Supreme Court ruling ruling uh, spate education facilities. Um, and I wanted to tell you what spate was. Um, I did not write it down. Wow. Well, forgive me, guys. I am so sorry. What a terrible, terrible uh, little reader I am for you guys. <laughs> I, uh, I really do apologize. Um, but anyways, uh, for students are inherently unequal ending segregation in public schools, the ruling changed the face of American education system, leading to future federal laws mandated in order to level the playing field and diversified classrooms. In 1965, the Elementary and Second Education Succeeds Act, which is all, you know, an act, so it's in our Constitution, was established to provide an equal education to low-income students whose primary language was other than English. And honestly, this, uh, uh, the Elementary and Secondary Education Succeeds Act came from LBJ's Great Society. It was a part of welfare. The act provided federal funding, also known as Title I, the intent that the additional money would provide resources and teachers needed to improve student academic success. Money would be withdrawn if standardized testing scores fell below a certain average. This act failed to bridge the gap learning among disadvantaged students, leading to subsequent education that would include curriculum and social and emotional learning as a means to improve academic success. Kind of wild. Thank you guys for listening to the Only You Podcast. And this is Democracy and Education by John Dewey. Chapter 1. Education as a Life Necessity. Excuse me. Education as a Necessity of Life. 1. Renewal of Life by Transmission. The most Notable distinction between living and intimate things is that the former maintain themselves by renewal. A stone, when struck, resists. If its resistance is greater than the force of the blow struck, it remains outwardly unchanged. Otherwise, it is shattered into small bits. Never does a stone attempt to reach. Oh, excuse me. Never does a stone attempt to react in such a way that it may maintain itself against the blow, much less so as to render the blow a contributing factor to its own continued action. While the living thing may easily be crushed by a superior force, it nonetheless tries to turn the energies which act upon it into means of its own further existence. If it cannot do so, it does not just split into smaller pieces, at least in the higher forms of life, but loses its identity as a living thing. As long as it endures, it struggles to use surrounding energies in its own behalf. It uses light, air, moisture, and the material of soil, or I, I would say that's some kind of uh, quantum physics or quantum mechanics. To say that it uses them is to say that it turns them into means of its own conservation. As long as it is growing, the energy is expands, and thus turning the environment to account is more than compensated for by the return it gets. It grows. Understanding the word control. 
in this sense, it may be said that a living being is one that subjugates and controls for its own continued activity the energies that would otherwise use it up. Life is a self-renewing process through action upon the environment. In all the higher forms, this process cannot be kept up indefinitely. After a while, they succumb. They die. The creature is not equal to the task of indefinite self-renewal, but continually of the life process in which dependent upon the prolongation of the existence of any one individual. Reproduction of other forms of life goes on in continuous sequence. And though, as the geological record shows, not mere, merely individuals, but also species die out, the life process continues in increasingly complex forms. As some species die out, forms better adapt to utilize the obstacles against which they struggle in vain come into being. Continuity of life, continual readaptation of the environment to the needs of living organisms. We have been speaking of life in its lowest terms as a physical thing, but we use the word life to denote the whole range of experience, individual and racial. When we see a book called The Life of Lincoln, we do not expect to find within its covers a treatise of, on psychology. We look for an account of social anecdotes, a description of early surroundings, of the conditions and occupation of the family, of the chief episodes and the development of character, of signal struggles and achievements, of the individual's hopes, tastes, joys, and sufferings. In precisely similar fashion, we speak of the life of a savage tribe, the Athenian people of the American nation. Life covers customs and institutions, beliefs, victories and defeats, recreations and occupations. We employ the word experience in the same pregnant sense, and to it as well as to life in the bare psychological sense, the principle of Continue, continuity through renewal applies. With the renewal of physical existence goes in the case of human beings, the recreation of beliefs, ideas, hopes, happiness, misery, and practices, the continuity of any experience through renewing of the social group is a literal fact. Education in its broadest sense is the means of social continuity of life. Every one of the constitute elements of a social group in a modern city as a savage tribe is born immature, helpless, without language, beliefs, ideas, or social standards. Each individual, each unit who is the carrier of the life experience of his group in time passes away, yet the life of the group goes on. And that's why I say, you know, you only have one life to live. And right here, he makes it a definite fact that, you know, you're born into this world with, you know, you're, you're born into the world as a negative, kind of. You know, you don't know anything. You know nothing. And all these ideologies and individualities that you take on, you take on normally like, uh, 
you know, Don Rees said in his book, The Four Acknowledgements, you know, you take on the characteristics of your mom and dad and their closed off beliefs and ideologies. And then all of a sudden you put yourself in the corner because you don't even know your true self because you never gave yourself a chance or got to know yourself. You just took on the role of mom and dad or grandma and grandpa or aunt and uncle and you didn't give yourself, you know, the individual unit of life experience, you know. But even though you're a part of a group, you're going to die at some point, And that group's going to still go on. And that's why I said earlier, you know, the stuff that goes on inside of your interpersonal circle affects generations to come. In, in America, that's where, that's why everybody that's in, you know, uh, our government is always trying to, and worrying about the people is because we know we should be on a way higher level. But our people here, they love poverty because, you know what, our government will take care of us. It ain't no big deal. Well, all that stuff's coming to an end. And it's unfortunate. And there ain't no time for anybody to sit around and just game for 20 years while they're living in mommy and daddy's basement. It's like, man, you got to grow up and get out there and cultivate this life because you only have so many days here you only have one life to live don't let it pass you by for technology and uncultivated relationships and missed opportunities you know in the midst of chaos you guys opportunities arise remember that it's actually gotten me very far in life remembering that the primary uh Inelectable facts, it's I-N-E-L-U-C-T-A-B-L-E. That's a hard word. Inelectable. Facts of the birth. Let's uh, see what inelectable actually means. Um, Inelectable is unable to be resisted or avoided. Facts of the birth and death of each one of the constitute members in a social group determines the necessary excuse me, determine the necessity of education. On one hand, there is the contrast between the immaturity of the newborn members of the group, its future sole representatives, and the maturity of the adult members who possess the knowledge and customs of the group. On the other hand, there is the necessity that these immature members be not merely physically preserved in adequate numbers, but that they are initiated into the interest, purpose, information, skill, and practices of the mature members. Otherwise, the group will cease to characteristic... It's, excuse me. Otherwise, the group will cease its characteristic life. Even in a savage tribe, the achievements of adults are far beyond what the immature members would be capable of if it left... if it was left to themselves. With the growth of civilization, the gap between the original capacities of the immature and the standards and customs of the elders increases and that's what i was just telling you about you know like our our poverty people in america sometimes are actually choosing to be poverty instead of you know um you know and, and you know just instead of you know winging it or getting by barely getting by you know you could cultivate a life that's worth living and you could actually you know, go on to be something great, you know, and, and I know this because I'm actually out here doing this, you guys, and, 
And I'm not saying that I wasn't falling through my life at one point and I was just um, surviving. And I had no idea I was just surviving because I was brought into this world as a negative, not knowing anything. And then I was brought up with a single mom because my dad passed away early on. So when you, when you lose a parent and then you're expected to act socially normal as a child, unfortunately it doesn't work. And that's why our criminal systems are plagued with stupid offenses that honestly, some serious counseling could clean up a lot of people's act. You know, had, had the man not been, you know, demoralized in America, if you go back and read books before 1950, you know, um, I, I, I think I did a, a podcast on, um, uh, oh, who was it? Um, Napoleon Hill. He wrote a book, but I remember it was in like the 30s. He talked about all he wanted was his son to have good morals and good values and that's why he kept him by his side 24-7. And that's what a man is supposed to do to his boy. Now these men in America are running around looking for drugs to, to smoke, looking for the next bar, the big party scene. I'm seeing dudes my age still living at home, still going through girl after girl, and mom and dad's okay with it. And I'm just sitting back scratching my head like, dude, I've been forced to have to work my ass off to have anything to make sure my kids have a great life to live and that they know how hard life really is because they've watched me struggle. They've watched me support them with everything I had of every ounce of my being I've poured into this, you know. Anyways, back to the book, uh, Democracy and Education by John Dewey. Mere physical growing up, mere mastery of the bare necessities of substances will not suffice to reproduce the life of the group. <clears throat> Deliberate effort and the taking of thoughtful pains and, re and required. Being who are born not only unaware of, but quite indifferent to the aims and habits of the social group have to be rendered cognate of them and actively interested. Education and education alone spans the gap. And I believe that, but then again, in America we've done it wrong because we're forcing our people to pay somebody here in this country who is already educated. But yet we're having to pay them for their universities, which our government should happily pay those. Because, and I feel like this, had, had we created a system to where if you were to go to college to be a doctor, well, then your college bill would be that of a doctor. Now, had you gone to school to be a janitor, your college tuition would be that of a janitor. And I know you might you might laugh at that, but dude, I've known I know some janitors that actually have a bachelor's degree on how to wax a floor. And I mean, when you walk on their floors, huh, you better have slip resistant shoes on because they're the best of the best. And I mean that. Society exists through a process of transmission quite as much as biological life. The transmission occurs by means of communication of habits of doing, thinking, and feeling from the older to the younger. Without this communication of ideas, hopes, expectations, standards, opinions from those members of society who are passing out of the group, 
Life to those who are coming into it, social life could not survive. If the members who compose a society lived on continuously, they might educate the newborn members, but it would be a task directed by personal interest rather than social need. Now, it is a work of necessity. And I do, I mean, I mean, I get it that young, young people need education completely. But then again, education starts with mom and dad. It ain't just mom's whole soul um, job is to teach this kiddo one, two, three, ABC. No, daddy, I'm sorry, buddy. It's time to put the remote down, put the beer down, get involved with your, your daughter or son and be the man that your God needs you to be for the group, for the social emotional learning of the universe, honestly. And a lot of people hate social emotional learning. Excuse me. A lot of people dislike social emotional learning in schools and they think, oh, this is something new. Uh, 17 or 1871, I think it's been around since. So it's nothing new. If a plague carried off the members of a society all at once, COVID, <laughs> it is obvious that the group would be permanently done for. Yet the death of each of its constituent members is as certain as if an epidemic took them all at once. But the greater difference in age, the fact that some are born as some die, makes possible through transmission of ideas and practices, the constant reweaving of the social fabric, yet this renewal is not automatic, unless pains are taken to see that the genuine and thorough transmission takes place. The most civilized group will relapse into barbicism and then or you know savagery in fact the human young are so immature that if they were left to themselves without the guidance and successor of others they could not acquire the rudimentary abilities necessary for physical existence and i find that true i want to tell you guys this i was in a i was at a starbucks about three years back and I looked over at this, uh, you know, pin board, and it had a poster on it. And it was a silhouette of, like, a cartoon head of a man with no hair, no nothing, just a, a George Washington side view of a head of a male. And inside the head, it said, under construction until the age of 25. And I really, really found that intriguing, and I thought about it for several years and I still am thinking about that poster because it fell upon me like a ton of bricks you know at 25 I was so lost I was falling through life and I was going and I mean I was I was going to work I was doing what I was supposed to do I had had a son by that time and a daughter I had no idea about parenting I had no idea how important it was but I was reading books getting educated because I wanted to be the best parent I could be but in reality, I knew that I was, I really was under construction, everybody, until I was like 28. And that's the sad thing about America is we put labels on things and we, and the government can just deem you 18, you're an adult. We can do what, with you what we will. Oh, you did that? You're going to prison. And I'm like, I couldn't believe it. I mean, that's like, a, it, it just puts so much stress on a man and if if men were to get out of America, travel to the Middle Eastern countries or Asiatic countries, they would learn that, you know, here our men have really been demoralized and second 
class citizenized, I feel. You know, like, there's so much emphasis, like, oh, you're the breadwinner, get out there. But yet, all these women want the same rights, but yet they just don't have the, you know, the anatomy of a male to be able to lift heavy objects, to uh, to be able to be, to swing a hammer precisionly, you know, to hit 100 nails in less than a minute, you know. And literally, I can do that if I want to. I actually won a contest once. <laughs> in college, you know, was swinging a hammer. This this big tall dude told me he oh I, I built this, I built that. I said, buddy, well you ain't never met me. I'm a I'm a swinging hammer fool. I built pole barns for three years with the Amish, <laughs> and sure enough, we set up these uh, sawhorses. Man, I, I whooped him at a hundred nails and let in about fifty two seconds. A hundred nails, bam, 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 one after another. Nobody could believe it. I was like a little robot, man. The young of human beings compared to uh, compare so poorly in original uh, efficiency with the young of many of the lower animals that even the powers needed for physical uh, sustenance, which that's like you know food and water sustenance, have to be acquired under tuition. How much more than is this the case with respect to all the technological, artistic, scientific? and moral achievements of humanity. This is two. Education and communication. So obvious indeed is the necessity of teaching and learning for the continued existence of a society that we may seem to be dwelling unduly on a truism. Thank you guys for tuning in to the Only You podcast today. I do really appreciate everybody you know, following me and just being my fans, you guys. I'm like, you guys are. When I started doing this, you know, I had lost my best friend. I was going through so much stuff. My uncle died just a couple months later, and he was actually one of my best friends. Um, and I've come so far since then. I've learned so much from reading all these books. I started reading books about grieving and how to get over it. And oh man, just this last year, I've done so many different works in my life, and I'm I just I'm grateful for every single one of you guys listening right now. And you really are you know, the soul of this podcast and just share me. I, I appreciate it. And if I'm, I'm stupid, tell me I'm stupid. And some of you guys do. I appreciate that too. <laughs> but Hey, I'm doing this not just for me, but for everybody or I'm trying to. So thank you so much for listening. And back to number two, education and communication. But justification is found in the fact that such emphasis is a means of getting us away from an unduly, uh, scholastic and formal notion of education. Schools are indeed one important method of transmission which forms the disposition of the immature, but it is only one means and compared with other agencies a relatively superficial means. Only as we have grasped the necessity of more fundamental and persistent modes of tuition can we make sure of placing the scholastic methods in their true context. Society not only continues to exist by transmission, by communication, but it may fairly be said to exist in transmission and communication. There is more than a verbal tie between the words common, community, and communication. And that's the truth. And everybody listening, you know, I do find it to be so important that we understand in the English language when, you know, when people of authority use certain words... Well, and if you feel that you're being taken advantage of or, you know, 
You're going to be hurt in some way. Pay attention to every single word. Know what every word means that they're using. And know the conformity of those words and what could be the end result. Because once you learn to pay attention to somebody's words and the words they use consecutively, you can really turn away from, you know, the things that you don't believe that they're saying and really realize who they really are on the inside just by the words that they've used. And I learned this over time, you know, um, uh, through the court systems in America. Uh, I once, you know, studied to be a police officer. I went to six week state police training. Uh, so I understand, you know, what were, how powerful words really are. And when people tell you that they're powerful, they really truly do mean it. What they must have in common in order to form a community or society are aims, beliefs, aspirations, knowledge, a common understanding like mind, mindfulness, as the sociologists say. Such things cannot be passed physically from one to another like bricks. They cannot be shared as persons would share a pie by dividing it into physical pieces. The communication which ensures participation in a common understanding is one which secures similar emotional and intellectual dispositions, like ways of responding to expectation and requirements. And I think that they need to incorporate social-emotional learning, you know, in, um, in the workplace as well, you know, because it's, it's important. Persons do not become... Yeah, persons do not become a society by living in physical proximity any more than a man ceases to be socially influenced by being so many feet or miles removed from others. Yeah, we all know that. I live in the country, but it doesn't matter. People still come to my house and people still text, email, and call. (laughs) You just can't get away from it, (laughs) y'all. A book or a letter may institute a more intimate association between human beings separated thousands of miles from each other other than exist between dwellers under the same roof. Individuals do not even compose a social group because they all work for a common end. And I find that to be true too. It's it's, it's interesting. The parts of a machine work with a maximum of cooperativeness for a common result, but they do not form a community. If, however, they were all cognizant of the common end and all interested in it so that they regulated their specific activity in view of it, then they would form a community. And that's how we form communities across, you know, cities, towns in America. But this would involve communication. Each would have to know what the other was about and would have to have some way of keeping the other informed as to his own purpose and progress. Consensus demands communication. We are thus compelled to recognize that within even the most social group, there are many relations which are not yet social. A large number of human relations in any social group are still upon the machine-like plane. And we've seen that um, from the 80s, 90s, 2000, 2010 till now with the LGBTQ community and how, you know, it was the gay 90s and then slowly it became more acceptable and slowly and then California or, yeah, California decided to start letting, you know, 
LBG, LBGTQ people get married. And we've seen that group actually, you know, they're now in our government. You know, I've seen one guy who is a, a transgender person in the government. I can't remember exactly what he does, but um, he's I think he's uh, in charge of foreign affairs. Don't quote me on that. A large number of human relations... Excuse me, a large number of human relationships in any social group are still upon the machine-like plane. Individuals use one another so as to get desired results without reference to the emotional and intellectual disposition and consent of those used. Such uses express physical superiority and uh, and or superiority of position, skill, technical ability, and command of tools, mechanical or fiscal. So far as the relations of parent and child, teacher and pupil, employer and employee, governor and governed, remain upon this level. They form no true social group, no matter how closely their respective activities touch one another, giving and taking of orders modifies actions and results, but does not of itself affect a sharing purpose, a communication of interest. Not only is social life identical with communication, but all communication, and hence all genuine social life, is educative. To be a receipt of a communication is to have a an enlarged and changed experience. One shares in what another has thought or felt, and in so far meagerly or amply has his own attitude modified, nor is the one who communicates left unaffected. Try the experiment of communicating with fullness and accuracy. Some experience to another, especially if it be somewhat complicated, and you will find your own attitude toward your experience changing. And that's why I tell you in other podcasts about prodigium and prodigium change. You have a belief and a thought system on something. Somebody comes along and says, oh no, your belief system's wrong. You forgot about this little fact that you didn't know about, and then boom, all of a sudden, your whole entire idea about everything changes, and the pre- the projection of your thoughts are then conformed to a different belief system. The experience has to be formulated in order to be communicated. To formulate requires getting outside of it, seeing it as another would see it, considering what points of contact it has with life of another so that it may uh, be got into such form that he can appreciate its means. Thank you so much for listening to the Only You podcast. And I'm doing the book Democracy and Education by John Dewey. I do appreciate all you guys listening. It may f- fairly be said, therefore, that any social arrangement that remains vital, social, or virtually shared is educative to those who participate in it. Only when it becomes cast in a mold and runs in a routine way does it lose its educative power. And we see that in the workplace with, you know, people always say, oh, I need to be trained. I'm not trained good enough. Well, right there, it explains it. Uh, Only when it becomes cast into a mold and runs in a routine way does it lose its educative power because, you know, businesses are ran with like a system and it loses its educational power of being able to learn and teach when we do that.
In final account, then, not only does social life demand teaching and learning for its own uh, permanence, but the very process of living together educates. It enlarges and enlightens experience, it stimulates and enriches imagination, it creates responsibility for accuracy and vividness of state and thought. A man really living alone, alone mentally as well as physically, would have little or no uh, accusation to reflect upon his past experience to extract its net meaning. The inequality of achievement between the mature and immature not only necessitates teaching the young, but the necessity of this teaching gives an immense stimulation to reducing experience to that order and form which will render it most easily communicable and hence most usable. 3. The place of formal education. There is accordingly a marked difference between the education which everyone gets from living with others as long as he really lives instead of just continuing to subside. And that's what I was talking about earlier about, you know, just uh, surviving, you know, just falling through life, you know, just subsiding and deliberate educating of the young. And that's important. We need to deliberately educate the young. In the former case, the education is incidental. It is natural and important, but it is not the express reason of the association. While it may be said without excuse me, exaggeration that the measure of the worth of any social institution, economic, domestic, political, legal, religious, is its effect in enlarging and improving experience. Yet this effect is not a part of its original motive, which is limited and more immediately practical. Religious associations began, for example, in the desire to secure the favor of overruling powers and to ward off evil influences family life and the desire of gratify appetites and secure family perpetually systematic labor for the most part because of enslavement to others etc only gradually was the byproduct of the institution its effect upon the quality and existence of conscious life noted and only more gradually still was this effect considered as a directive factor in the conduct of the institution. Even today in our industrial life, apart from certain values and industrialness and thrift, the intellectual and emotional reaction of the forms of human association under which the wor world's work is carried on receives little attention as compared with physical output. Thank you guys for listening to the Only You podcast, and this has been Democracy and Education. You can find this on all the major platforms. It was written by John Dewey. He was also one of the founding fathers in America. And I do want to say that, you know, without education, life is not worth living. I mean, I was born to a very poor dad, you know, and when I would go visit him, I played with lots of poor kids and I picked up lots of poor habits. And those habits stayed with me all the way up until I was about 20 years old when I realized that I still ran around with some of those kids. And, I, and then all of a sudden, all those kids started going to jail and all those kids started uh, doing drugs and um, started uh, really taking a turn for, you know, not for good. You know, it was kind of a, a bad um, thing. But, you know, 
once I realized the importance of education and I realized what all my elementary schools um, were saying, you know, when they told me that I had a lot of grit and I had a lot of uh, things going for me. And I can remember, you know, I was eating at a restaurant in fourth grade and my teacher was there with her family. And my mom did not like to be bothered when she was eating. My mom, in which I mean most people don't, but my teacher bent down in my mom's ear and whispered while my mom had a mouthful of food. My mom was so offended. And when we got in the car, my mom was upset. But my mom told me, well, you know, Lo, I'm proud of you. I'm, I'm proud that you're doing good in school. She said your teacher really, really um, told me she was proud of you, you know, pretty much. And all kids in America need that. All kids in China need that. All kids in Africa need that. All kids in South America need that. We as adults need to get educated so that we can help our little ones grow into becoming more productive people in society, not continue to fall through life and, um, con uh, you know, conforming our children's minds to be dead set in the systems and parameters that, you know, we have been just surviving in and not thriving in. As a people, you know, had we had we th been more of a thriving uh, populace as opposed to only the 1% thriving and the rest of the 99 pretty much dying, not dying, but you know, not coming to the point of, uh, you know, being somewhat more educated than just being in a system. Because, I mean, I know tons of people that are living just on the edge, you know, barely getting by. And then, you know, you got people on the internet, on social media, like, hey, man, I know you don't know me, but could I get $70? You know, I don't know how many times a week I get somebody just sending me a random message about, you know, cash app, sending them money. Excuse me? I don't even know you, man. Like, what would make you think that I would, you know, go out of my social norm to help somebody who isn't educated on the way society works? You don't just get on you know, some platform and reach out to somebody you have no idea about. That person could be so powerful that they could find you in a matter of seconds and muzzle you for life. You know, and another podcast that I had done on Thomas Erickson's Surrounded by Idiots, he says in that book that a woman actually read it, took the book to heart, and then literally found out where he lived and found... Another guy across the country did the same thing to him and literally pinned two guys against each other that were writers because they wouldn't counsel her and her problems. But in reality, Thomas Erickson went on to write another book called Surrounded by Psychopaths where he talks and he, I mean, he did the research for 50 years and he says the fifth behavior type is somebody every single one of us runs into every day. A psychopath just isn't, you know, a murderer or a rapist. It's uh, it's the guy that isn't educated and is trying to find single moms, telling them, oh, well, I love you, baby, oh, this and that. You know, but in reality, all he wanted to do was get out of business tax debt. So she had three kids. He married her. You know, tax time comes around. He claims her kids. He's... He's tax-free. He's tax-debt-free. And then he skates on her and divorces her the next month. You know, and I actually honestly do know somebody that happened to. 
Because this gentleman was uneducated. That's a psychopath. You know, we don't need more psychopaths in the world because, I mean, if you're not a socialite and you're not in society learning from each other and trying to build each other up, you know, when you're closed off, that builds the psycho, you know, the psychotropic effects of being a psychopath. And unfortunately, one in ten people are. And we meet these people every day. It's the chipper, outgoing, excitable guy that uh, loves everything and everybody. But then once he gets into a relationship, you know, he's beating on his woman, uh, demoralizing her. You know, oh, you ought to be doing my laundry, get in there and make dinner, barefoot and pregnant, you know. And it's like, whoa, wait a minute, dude, that's a female. She is just as much equally um, equivocal, unequivocally... Uh, uh, she need she is the same as you in this life. She's your helper, you know. She's not just somebody to, you know, abuse like that because you have not stepped out of the way you were raised. You haven't um left the rural area and went into the city to realize how people live there and that. The ways you've been conformed to life isn't always the ways that people really live, that there are differences in society about how people live and how people grow and develop and that there should be a way that we all could go somewhere and get on the same level that we ain't leaving grandma behind that didn't have any education. You know, I can remember my grandma signing a check. She signed an X. She didn't know how to read or write. Boy, when she had that Bible out every night, and when she passed away, you know how she passed away? She passed away on a Saturday night with her head down on her Bible at her kitchen table, you know, because she was educated in the in the Lord. She didn't have to know how to read or write. She just knew all the words in that Bible, and that was the only book she cared about. But it made her pass that on to her kids and her grandkids and to me, you know. And thank you, Beulah, for that. I appreciate it. God rest your soul. I love you. Thank you guys for listening, and democracy and education go hand in hand. We can't stop what the government's doing, but we can rise up amongst ourselves and become more prominent as people and stop acting as though we are all impoverished because we are not. In this world right now, there is no room for poverty anymore, honestly. we have The money is endless, people. And once you realize that, once you realize that all you got to do is show up 90% of the time and you're going to wind up having a wonderful life as long as you show up that 90%. You know, don't check out and don't leave your kids out. Don't hang them out to dry on education and don't let, let them hang out to dry on taxes and the government. You need to be teaching your kids how to balance a checkbook. You need to be teaching your kids the differences between democratic and republican and libertarian and all the jargon that goes on in our world. These kids need to know it because once that we empower our children, we will then have a voice in the world that will be unshakable forever. Thank you for listening to Only You Podcast.